Warning! This episode contains foul language, graphic descriptions of murder, and discussions of suicide, incest, and sexual abuse. listening to keep it weird the podcast for all things strange and unusual for all things bloody and crusty and for all things that make you say oh my god everyone knows the husband did it this week we're heading back to the glamour and the glitz of hollywood but this time we're focusing on the dark side the back alleyways the handbags in the gutters the scariest of scandals that hollywood tried to cover up with the flashing lights of the paparazzi this week We're talking murder. How many young starlets and -and up-and-coming auteurs have lost their lives pursuing their dreams in Tinseltown? Was the dog-eat-dog world of Hollywood itself to blame? Today we're discussing three incidents that aren't quite what they seem. So check your rear window and dial M for murder. My name is Ashley and this is my co-host Lauren. Hello, weirdos. And we are once again joined by our good friend all the way from the Big Apple, Mr. Mike Johnston. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yay. It is a pleasure. We've all got a a tasty alcoholic bev. Feeling good, feeling right. We sure do. I was actually taking a sip when you said bloody and crusty and thought I missed my cue. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bloody and crusty. Those are quite the adjectives. Celebrating getting through another Monday. Mm-hmm. One thing I had to take a sip. Mike, one thing I wanted to talk about before we get into it. Do you remember that time you mailed us signed copies of Campfire by Sean Sarles? Yeah. And I thought that I had a stalker. Uh, I I don't know if I thought you had a stalker, <laughs> but I do remember that very sweet gesture. <laughs> it was such a sweet gesture. It was so sweet that and you did that. You sent the book, and for whatever reason, I don't remember why, I I didn't see or I didn't recognize the name on the package. I just kind of like ripped it open, but I got this book in the mail. It's called Campfire uh, by Sean Sarles, and written on the title page, it says, To Ashley, be careful what stories you tell at night. And I legit was like, is this the beginning of a horror? Is this a threat? (laughs) I forget how you found out it was Mike. You told me. Yeah. I was like, did you message me? I think you sent me a very like cryptic message. Like, Like, Lauren, I'm really nervous. (laughs) I got this book. I was like, that's Mike Johnston, you fool. That is too funny. This is coming back to me a little bit more now. (laughs) And exciting thing, Sean is actually, I think his second novel is going to be published very soon. He's one of my friends in New York, and he is a um, young adult horror writer. I love, I love it. That. You'll have to let us know. We're I'm, I'm happy to give him some free uh, press here on the yeah, show, because we'll I, I, I loved out. that book. Yeah. Once I got over the talented. initial shock. <laughs> yeah, but it once was you not were, from once a it was confirmed that it wasn't yeah. a threat. <laughs> Just so funny. I, I literally texted that. Lauren. I was like, we might have a problem. I don't know. Um, 
but I don't know how to bring this up to you, but yeah. we're, yeah. we should be a little worried. I yeah. was like, keep your, none, keep none, your none. eyes peeled. We have got to shut the show down. <laughs> Someone has my address. Someone too dangerous. <laughs> and they've mailed me a threat. Um, <laughs> another question I had, do you guys have any all time favorite Hollywood conspiracy theories because remember they used to be fun it used to be like Beyonce's a scorpion Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by a clone and Richard Gere had a gerbil stuck in his butt and now it's Mm -hmm. like they all joined forces with Hillary Clinton and the Queen of England and sex traffic babies and it's like what the fuck but they used to be fun do you have a favorite um I mean a favorite I would say that the one I probably heard and like thought was the craziest was the one you already said with Richard Gere and the gerbil (laughs) um I just that was really that was like left field man I I remember being really young when we heard that too and I was really freaked out yeah like one who made that up two who are the people that spread that three why Richard Gere (laughs) (laughs) right what was the origin of that? I know. Yeah, that is a very good question. Uh, according I mean, to Snopes, it's false. may have to be false. edited out of the episode, <laughs> but I feel like it used to be a thing that like was a gay thing, like to well, like yeah. to like I, put like homosexuals down and make them be like creepy. It was like they're putting gerbils up their butt. They're not normal people. No, that was the way I heard the rumor. I was going to say that is that that the rumor was that Richard Gere was actually gay and that was what he was into. So he put uh, a gerbil into his butt. And I again, I found out when I was really young and barely even knew what being gay was. So I was like, "What? Why is he hurt?" And I was like, "So lost but yeah it's so funny it's so funny that there's still people that are like gay you mean you put rats in your butt like (laughs) that just have no concept of what it means to to be any letter in the lgbtqa (laughs) you know what i mean it's just like a lot of people from my high school you just described them i know i am gonna look it up i'm i mean not right now we have things to do but i'll i'm gonna do some research on this because I really want to know like who started this like was it a magazine was it like Like, just like a lady in the street who said it and like someone (laughs) was like what (laughs) and also to answer your question from my point of view I feel like we've mentioned this one on the show before but I really enjoy the theory that Katy Perry is John Benet Ramsey yeah that's a big one and literally the faves. only thing is that, like, if you put their pictures next to each other, they look like each other. And it's like, mm, right. I mean, kind of. A little bit. But then, yeah, if you dig into the rest of Katy Perry's past, it's like, none of this makes there sense. There are pictures of her when <laughs> she's a child. So that I kind know. of. <laughs> but it just makes me giggle. The way people tried to connect the dots and, like, yeah. reached and reached, I give them props. Because that's you know? the thing. That would be cool. It'd be really it was like, by the way, that this, would be so crazy. This girl that you've you've mourned over for however many years is actually still alive and doing quite well. Yeah, <laughs> thriving, thriving. Has a baby. I kind of like the the conspiracy theory that Stevie Wonder isn't blind. Oh yes, I have heard that one a lot. Yeah. Wow. I mean, can you imagine that he's just been tricking us all this whole time? Yeah, or just like, what a weird thing to commit yourself to for all of your life. Agreed. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. It's a big commitment. Yeah, and there are some things. There, There's videos online of people tossing him things and him catching it. And there's a video of a mic stand falling over and he grabs it before it falls and resets it. 
Uh-huh. But you have to think of how we do that as people, how like something will be falling off the shelf behind us and we'll like reach our hand out and all of a sudden catch it and be like, how the fuck did I do that? Right. I didn't even see it. I just like felt it falling and like went and grabbed it. And it's like, I didn't, you know, I I don't claim to be blind, but I didn't see it fall. I just had my body just did what it was supposed to do. It's like something in your senses was tingling and like his other senses besides sight are absolutely heightened. So maybe that's how he does it. Well, and also you don't have to be fully, completely can't see anything in the entire world to be declared legally blind. Right. He can see shapes maybe. I don't know. I haven't talked to him about it recently. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say this is probably not, we don't need to like go into the mechanics of the, or to the depths of which Stevie Wonder is blind, but (laughs) I do know that like my mom, I think is like legally blind in one of her eyes, but like she's still a fully able like to do things Mm -hmm. person. Like she can drive, she can do all those normal things. She can still read, but she is legally blind in one eye. Oh, I didn't know that about Kim. Yeah, good old Kim. So yeah, so today we're talking about uh, murders in Hollywood. This is a subject we have covered before, but we've got a, a whole new... I think, I'm pretty sure all three murders are from like way back when. We're not covering anything recent. I was thinking that. I'm like, we kind of went kinda old cool. Hollywood yeah. on accident. Yeah, yeah, we're going way, <laughs> way, way back. You're going to start us off with a guy named <coughs> William. <laughs> William Desmond Taylor. <laughs> Yeah, we are going real old school with this one. We're going back to the 20s. So are you guys Damn. ready to travel back with me? Yes. You feeling it? Okay. Entering destination code. <laughs> I was going to say. 1920. I'm going to put like the Dr. Hugh music in here. Like, who is? <laughs> yes. Here we go. As we travel back in time. Okay, let me set the scene. Late on the night of February 1st, 1922, a woman was coming back home to her bungalow in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. You guys may have heard of it. Yeah. And noticed her next door neighbor's light was still on. The man who lived there, William Desmond Taylor, was a very famous director in Hollywood at the time and was known for burning the midnight oil. So it really wasn't crazy that he would be awake and his light would be on. So she forgot about it, went home. But early the next morning, the woman awoke to a horrific scream coming from one of the neighbors. (coughs) Oh, God. Excuse me. Oh, I'm choking on my spit. Okay. (laughs) A horrific. (laughs) That was a bad one. That was so dramatic. Go on. It was. I mean, I'm a dramatic person. Um, That's what happens in the 1920s. That's true. what happens. It's silent film. You got to be real over the top. (laughs) Um. The next morning, the woman awoke to a horrific scream from one of the neighbors, saying, Mr. Taylor is dead. Mr. Taylor is dead. Yikes. It was being shouted by a man named Henry Peavy. Henry Peavy was Taylor's cook and valet, and he was screaming, Mr. Taylor is dead, as he ran up and down the courtyard of the apartment buildings. Peavy had arrived at work in the early morning hours and saw that William Desmond Taylor was lying face down on the floor. He had been shot in the back, but he didn't realize this right away. Neighbors would recall hearing what they thought was a car backfiring around 9 p.m. the night before, and one couple, alarmed at the sound, had even looked out their window to see what was going on, and they saw a man leaving Taylor's home. It was a very small man with an effeminate walk, was the exact description that they gave investigators later, which will come in handy as we discuss more. Before police were even called... 
this is how bullshit Hollywood was and still honestly is because I think this stuff happens. But before the police were even called, the studio was called by PV, Henry PV. Oh, yeah. This assistant. Like, nope, not going to call in detectives. I'm going to call the Mm -hmm. studio to make sure this is all okay. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, they did uh shit like that all the time. Like when uh, uh, Reeves was shot. Yes, exact same thing. Yeah, they called the studio. It's like, let's check for a scandal and see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, just so. to make sure, like, do we, if we have to cover something up, like, right. we can. It's just so crazy to me, but yes. Um, you so know PB that calls, still happens. It, I right? know, that's why I was it like, it's ba- it was back in the day, but I 100% think this still happens, especially if you're, I don't know, if, like, the specific person that was found, like, you know was yeah. up to no good. And they're probably like, oh, shit, we gotta sweep the apartment first and get this <laughs> stuff out of here. Well, that's the thing with, like, um, um uh, I think it was Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger was found by a masseuse, but he was in one of the Olsen twins' hotel room. Oh, yeah, Mary-Kate. Yeah, and, yeah, like... Yeah, because they were, like, dating for a while. Mm-hmm, and everyone was wondering if she pr- provided him with the drugs, or there was, like, right. this whole thing, and I was always wondering like what the exact story on that was but you know, know what and we it's never really business. learned yep so oh, I'm sorry studio execs wanted to come in and sweep the home for anything that could have caused a scandal hollywood was already under fire at this time because there were a lot of toxic men in the industry oh, again yeah. not much has changed <laughs> but, <laughs> but they wanted to get ahead of it so after the sweep and going in and collecting things that they thought would cause up a stir, the police were finally called a few hours later. Everyone actually believed it was a natural death at first. Like mm-hmm. I said, they couldn't tell that it was a gunshot because there was no sign of struggle. He was laying very calmly on the ground. But once the body was finally lifted up, a huge pool of blood pool of blood was revealed under his chest and blood had been dripping out of his mouth. And then they found the gunshot in his back. A suspect list was drawn up by the police, and it literally sounds like a movie, like the way it's described. It was a threatened stage mother, drug dealers, a love-torn teenager, and possibly members of a gay opium cult. Okay, You sure. heard right. I mean, yep. I'm sure they were around. <laughs> they were around. They were kicking. Who knows what they were into? <laughs> Gerbils. Tail. Yeah, probably gerbils. into gerbils. That's how <laughs> Richard Gere learned about and it. Murder. <laughs> the the gays of 1920s Hollywood. <laughs> <sighs> so all of Taylor's vices start to surface. All of his private life starts to come forward. There was pornography that was found in the bungalow. There was a collection of women's lingerie, and I'm like, okay, who was in charge who of cares? doing the sweep? Yeah. But also <laughs> Yeah, A, who cares, but who man. was in charge of doing the sweep because I feel like they found porn and immediately everyone was like, he's Deviant. disgusting. Yeah. I mean, like, but well, also, I know we're saying who's in charge of the sweep, but also maybe it was a plant. Oh. Mike Johnston. Oh. Yes, sir. Okay. I like the way you think. Okay, okay, okay. So they find some porn, they find some women's lingerie, and also stories start to come forward from family members and people who knew him before coming to Hollywood, and we all learn that Taylor had completely abandoned a wife and daughter back in New York. Whoa! He had told them that he was going to pan for gold in Klondike during the gold rush and bring back a bunch of money, but guess what? 
He never came back. Oof. He just disappeared and never returned. And his family just had to sit and wonder if he would ever come back to them, if he had died, what was truly going on. It, it was just a dead end. They had no clue. Wow. His wife and daughter found out that he was in Hollywood because they went to the movies one day and he was on the screen. Can you that, imagine? Right? I would be so mad. I I don't even know what I would do. I think I would get up and start like stabbing the screen with whatever I could find in my purse and just like <laughs> rip open the movie screen out of anger because I truly, I just, I can't even wrap my head around that. That you think, should I be mourning my husband? Like, did he get kidnapped? Is he dead? Is he, where is he? No, he's living, and it turns living out he the just, life. Yeah, he's rich and famous in Hollywood and oh dating a million women and I just, I can't. So that was how they found out, sitting with absolute shock in their seats. So people are starting to find these things out and there wasn't a very pretty picture being painted of old William Desmond Taylor. So again, this murder started to unfold basically like a movie script with all of the people involved. So the police are starting to question everybody. The last person to see Taylor alive was Hollywood It Girl at the time named Mabel Normand. It was rumored that Desmond Taylor was madly in love with her, but a lot of others argued that he was gay and actually was involved in a lot of underground gay club hmm. activity. So nobody was really sure what his sexuality was, or maybe he was bi or what he was up to. But um, it was the biggest news story was that he was hanging out with Mabel Normand. Norman was addicted to cocaine at the time very heavily, and Taylor had tried repeatedly to help her get treatment. Eventually, he went straight to the source, attempting to report her dealers to the police. Oh, my God. And they weren't into that. So one of the <laughs> biggest theories is that Taylor had been killed by someone in the drug ring in an attempt to stay yeah. free and stay out of the police's eye, which I honestly, as soon as I read that, was like, well, yes, I 100% think that's what happened. Who Maybe things were different back then, but like who in the world would be like, you know what, I'm going to report this cocaine dealer. I just right. feel like, one, that's not going to fix your friend's drug problem. And two, are you insane? I almost said, yeah. have you seen movies? But there weren't any yet. <laughs> there weren't so any Just back kidding. Then. Like, why would you ever know. go try to deal with a dealer directly? Like, that's <laughs> only going to get you in trouble. I can't. Well, what I think is interesting is I actually, that's not, that to me isn't that shocking. Like, I think when you are dealing with someone with addiction, it's, I, I think more from like a parental sense, like True. you would do anything to, to, to help them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you would go, if it meant you had to like try to get the person who was supplying them in trouble, like that doesn't seem that far like of a stretch for me, but mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that. I guess you said he was madly in love with, but you know what I mean? That seems like something you would only do for someone you were like very deeply that you um, really, really involved with in some capacity. Yeah. I mean, something had to be going on between them if he was like trying this hard to get her dealers arrested and, you know, like get the cocaine out of her hands. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they really were involved. So that is theory number one. Yes, that a drug dealer came after him. Another theory is that the man seen retreating from Taylor's house that night was not a man at all, which again, when the description came out, it was a very effeminate walk, which obviously it could still be a man, but it just, it makes you question because it was also said that it was like a very tiny man's body. So could it have been just like a short, petite female? female. But yeah. mm -hmm. 
Another theory was that it wasn't a man at all, but it was actually this woman named Charlotte Selby, who was the mother of a teen starlet, bringing back that word. (laughs) We love a starlet. Mother of teen starlet named Mary Minter. And Mary Minter was a protege of William Desmond Taylor. She had been in love with him, but Taylor rebuffed her, saying that their age difference was too crazy and like he just he could never give her the time of day. She was a teenager. He was an older man. But rumors were circulating that one of the pieces of lingerie found in his house had Mary Minter's initials on it, and they were spending a lot of time together, supposedly in a mentor-mentee capacity, but Charlotte Selby, the mother, of course, is making her own assumptions. So Shelby was already this nutty stage mom. She was outraged by the possible relationship, and in the coming years after the murder happened, both of Shelby's daughters, including Mary, accused her of the murder straight up. Damn. <laughs> turned on their mother and said, I fully believe she's capable of this. She's a monster. I've seen her do violent things. It's our mother. So she was accused by her own daughters, but there was just not enough evidence pointing to her. Apparently, she had some sort of alibi. Back then, I don't know how airtight alibis were. But there's that. So she's another theory that she came after angry about her daughter. Then there is this man named Edward Sands. He was Taylor's former valet before uh, Henry Peavy. He had previously robbed him, already wasn't a good dude, and was fired immediately. And so he was long considered a leading suspect because he had, you know, already crossed this man before. But the police were just unable to find this guy. He He had vanished without a trace. They did receive an anonymous letter about a year after the crime. It was from a male confessing to the crime, but it was unsigned, no name. They just know it was a man saying that they did it. So there's always been this question of, was that Edward confessing to the crime? Was it just some complete rando confessing? Unfortunately, it is a dead end. But they did receive that letter and always had it in the back of their mind. It was maybe him. I feel like it's weird to write a confession letter and then not sign it. I know. Like... You just needed to get it off your back, but didn't quite have the courage to say, signed, Edward. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why, but... Especially if it wasn't, like... The letter part for sure happened, right? The letter part is for sure. Like, police received it. They just have no idea who it's from. They theorized it was from Edward. Apparently, there was, like, a slight handwriting matchup or something, and they, they thought it felt like him, but it was a total dead end, and no one could ever find the guy, so... Wow. They don't know for sure. And then in 1964, a woman named Margaret Gibson, who was a silent film star who had worked with Taylor a lot, um, as she lay dying in 1964, she asked for a priest so she could confess her sins. And she proceeded to tell the priest and the group of neighbors gathered around her that she killed William Desmond (gasps) Taylor. No. So that totally came out of the blue. And then she died and they got like no further details out of her. So they all just sort of said like, do we believe this? Do we think this is real? Was she even hanging out with William at this time? Like it was more questions than answers. But they did have this confession that they like, they just didn't know what to do with. Like they didn't know if they should accept it or not because there was just no more surrounding it. But that was that. And then she just died. So they had a written confession from who knows This verbal confession from Margaret Gibson, very suspicious motives from other people surrounding, you know, they have Mabel Norman, the lover, they have the two valets, all these things. Different biographies started to come out in the following years, professing that they either knew the true killer or were involved in the crime, but no consensus consensus ever emerged saying this is absolutely what happened. 
And Taylor's murder, unfortunately, was never solved. And I mean, of course, by this time, never will be. Wow. Is there any more info on this old lady who The old lady? Yeah, the one that like on her deathbed. Only that they worked together, but like it's believed that they didn't even really hang out that much outside of work. That's why investigators didn't really know how to take the confession because they worked together, but they weren't known to like party together or hang together. So it was sort of like, what's your motive? You didn't really have a relationship with him outside of work. Margaret Gibson, silent film star. Are you doing a Google? Are you doing a Google? I'm doing it. I don't I know if she's silently Googling on the side right now. <laughs> I just can't imagine like people who put themselves in a narrative that they're not a part of. Like that to yeah. me blows my I mind. No, but it happens all the time, which is crazy. It does. I know. I feel like that like really is nuts. Because right. you know, like sometimes people are like, oh, I did this, but really they just meant because of like, like kind of like a butterfly effect thing. You know what I mean? Like because yeah. I didn't go to the grocery store like i said i would i'm the reason that harold passed you know I what know. i mean like yeah people do things about like yourself that. somehow yeah but like this just seems like i don't and know maybe, I, I think i secretly want it to be her because i want it to be like kind of solved i do too i hate unsolved murders so i'm like can we just believe that it was margaret i mean she did know him so mm-hmm. let's go with it but The crazy thing I just wanted to throw in at the end of this, like, obviously the murder was never solved and that's crazy in itself, but also, like, Minter, that Mary Minter, the protege, and then Mabel Norman's careers never recovered because of this scandal because so many people believed they were responsible. So they, like, never got jobs again in Hollywood and they were, like, frowned upon all because of this, even if they didn't do it. And the incident itself left a huge mark on the Hollywood industry. It was... Already looking bad because people were claiming that Hollywood was run by cocaine crazed sexual lunatics and everyone was from Satan, which like Christians say that about Hollywood today, too. Um, But uh, conservative political and religious groups were coming forward saying we need you to start making more wholesome content and, you know, start getting people on a better path, get better storylines, trying to get censorship bills passed. And some of this was actually starting to gain traction because it wasn't just Taylor's murder, but even the year before, silent film star uh, Fatty Arbuckle had been accused of rape and murder, which was a huge. Did I talk about that on our last? I think you mentioned it on our last one with Blair. Yes, because I know I read about it, but I was like, I don't know if I ever like shared that information. That story's wild. I think we mentioned it in passing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about bringing it to this episode, but was like, this all sounds so familiar. So I was like, we won't. But he already, like, Fatty Arbuckle was already its own thing. And then this happened with Taylor. And it was like, okay, we got to crack down. So there was a man named William H. Hayes who was hired by all the studios to help fend off government censorship by creating a a self-policing system of do's and don'ts and ways to be careful. And Hollywood thought they could just do it themselves. They don't need to get the government involved. But... Of course, Hollywood is terrible at self-policing. So finally, laws had to get a little more harsh. And by 1934, studios had to up their moral standards and required uh, really specific contracts that, like, you basically had to get approval before anything was released. Your script had to be extremely wholesome. There could be zero sex, zero profanity, basically zero anything. They were saying be as boring as possible. And these laws unfortunately passed. Mm -hmm. And a very conservative version of Hollywood lasted for about 30 years until it started getting slowly back to normal and into, you know, the movies we see today. Obviously, like anything goes in movies and TV today. You can get away with anything. But 
there was, yeah, like a 30-year, like, drought where you had to be, like, so conservative. I think one of the first movies that got hit by it was um, It Happened One Night. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but there's a couple who stays in a cabin together and their beds had to be separate and they had to, like, hang a sheet in between their beds and wear, like, super, super conservative pajamas and it couldn't even be, like, alluded to that they were, like, changing or, like, lusting after each other. It was, like, it took all the romance out of the movie and that was how Hollywood had to be because of these things that happened and careers were ruined over it. It's nuts. Yeah. I mean, and things like I Love Lucy, like Ricky and Lucy never could be in the same bed. They were always separated. Even though they were married in real life, you know what I mean? Like, right. They never, um, they never did that stuff. That's so crazy. I I don't think I realized why that was the way it was, and I don't think I realized that it lasted for three decades. Uh huh. My mom always talks about like still because it was starting to end. I think when you know my parents were like getting older, but when she was a kid, like watching TV, she said parents were always separated in different beds, and she just sort of would be like. Yep, I guess that's how parents sleep. Weird that my mom and dad only have one bed, but I'll go along with it. And it's like, kids were probably believing that a lot of married couples just slept in their twin beds, when in fact, that was just, that was the law of Hollywood. Well, it also gave us, as people who weren't alive at the time, this like weird image of what life used to be, especially American life used Mm -hmm. to be when it was like, it was never like that. Like they portrayed it that way but like it was never like that our grandparents fucked like crazy that's why i have so many aunts and uncles (laughs) they all had like 12 kids it was so normal to have huge families they had sex all the time um (laughs) i wanted to add some interesting things here uh, about margaret gibson from my quick goog so the reason that they think maybe she if she had um killed him like it could have been about the Arbuckle um, scandal because I guess Ah. it said, um, so I'll get back to this. It says, given her documented arrest record, excuse me, along (laughs) with Taylor's reportedly odd remarks in the weeks leading to his murder. I don't know what that means. The inferred motive somehow would have been related to blackmail in the wake of the Arbuckle scandal, during which the private lives of most of Hollywood celebrities easily could fall under highly sensationalized public scrutiny. And that's also when, like, you know, the uh, Los Angeles Times, like uh, all the magazines and stuff, they started to put uh, celebrities on the front. Like if there was a scandal, like that was also that time that was happening. So, yeah, apparently she was arrested in 1923. It says 21 months after Taylor was murdered. She was arrested at her home on federal felony charges involving an alleged nationwide blackmail and extortion ring. Oh, gosh. So I think she was blackmailing. William. People. Well, it just says it says several people. It doesn't like list any like people she actually blackmailed. Um, But she worked in the film industry, and so it looks like some of them were, like, actors, actresses, uh, producers, etc. So she could have been trying to blackmail him and something went wrong. Yeah, maybe. If she was the killer. And she was angry as hell. Yeah. Who knows? Wow. Wow, Which she could have been, because, again, there's a chance that it's a woman. So it definitely could have been Margaret Gibson. Like Mike was saying, I kind of want it to be her, because it's like, she confessed. Let's seal it. Let's do it. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. I know. You need more than that. I I wonder how many people actually confess to Zodiac killings, because it's got to be in, like, the tens of thousands. (laughs) 
Seriously. And it sounds like that was the case for this guy, too. Everybody wanted to claim the murder. It's bizarre. Which is strange because most of us try our best to stay out of jail. <laughs> to avoid that. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. And that's the tale of William Desmond Taylor. Wow, that was a good one. The starlet. The starlet. <laughs> the starlet. Also, isn't it... Cr Sorry, this is like very side note, but... Like, isn't it crazy to think about? I mean, so, like, if you live in Westlake Village now, right, that's, like, a trek. Like, that's far. Yeah. The houses are really nice. That's a far ways from, Studios. you know, if you're, like, at the Paramount, Paramount lot or something like that. Right. Um, so just thinking, like, back then, how far that was to, like, live away. But, I, I mean, Lucy and Ricky, granted, I'm, like, probably someone's going to write hate mail that I'm getting the dates wrong. But, like, <laughs> I know they had a studio, like, in, like... Canoga Park or something or Chatsworth I think where they used to live out there and that's where they like kind of built their studio so like maybe that is closer but that right. just seems like I don't know back in the 1920s going from Westlake to you know Melrose no it seems like that would you take forever. you all day <laughs> yeah cars weren't moving too fast I have a tale about a young woman named Jean Spangler has anyone heard of Jean Spangler Oh, yes. But I, I don't know all like the deets deets, right. so I'm excited. So Jean was a young Hollywood starlet, our new favorite word, in the 1940s. <laughs> We're in the 40s now. Oh. She was a dancer and a background extra, which seemed like quite the party back then. But also, I guess it was a party when we did it, too. <laughs> like, actually really thinking was. about it, it was like all we did was like go to set, get off set, drink, uh, and party. But... Drink I feel until like the I, was, hours I feel morning. like that's like literally how I described myself as, to people. Like I'm a dancer in a background. <laughs> <laughs> that is you. <laughs> and I drink you and exactly. do drugs on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's kind of I I I remember those days being very sleepless. Yes, we were young and we could stay up late and still report to set the next day and do it all For over like again. 12 to 15 hours. And it's like, if I had to do that today. Oh, no, I wouldn't survive. I feel like I always describe it as like college part two or like in my case, since I didn't finish college, it was like it basically was my college, college experience. Yeah, I was just like partying it up, like made lifetime friends. But yeah, really, it was a it was a party time. I uh, I do highly recommend it for young people yes. living in a city. If you're like kind of don't know what you want to do, like totally recommend it, especially if you're new to a city, because at least half of my friends that I've met in L.A. I met through background, which yep. is a nice, Again, strong you're, bond. And you're like fed well if you're on a decent totally, show. Totally, yeah. Yes. Crafty was so good on Glee. That is the credit yeah. I'll give them. Even that if you really weren't good. on like a super decent show, I was fed better than I was feeding myself at home. Yeah, I was eating melted shredded cheese off of a <laughs> plate at home. <laughs> Mike Johnston is my witness. He I, saw I me do it. I was witness to that. <laughs> he was like, let me buy you lunch. This is the saddest food. thing I've ever seen. But yeah, and also that's how Ashley and I met, which was really cute. That is being cute. extras. Yep. Also, I, a quick story about my experience as an extra. I was <laughs> yes, not please. one of the fortunate ones that got to be on that musical dancing show that everyone loved so much. You would have fit right um, in. I Well, I feel like my friends were from that show. I just never was allowed. Never got booked. I did get a SAG voucher from that show, though, once. You did? Yeah. 
Um, but a show that I was on that I shall not name, but my favorite pop diva of all time came from. Um, it's a show. If you say so. Um, uh, are you talking about... Mm-hmm. We can bleep all of this out. Yeah, we'll totally bleep <laughs> yes. this out. I will bleep all the special parts out because I did a lot. I did And too. it wasn't until, what was it, last year, Lauren, that I texted you and I was like, wait a minute, that was... And I was like, yes, where have you been? No and you were like, I'm sorry. Because yeah. she would walk around set singing all the time. And I remember being like, she has a good voice, but she's kind of annoying because she wouldn't stop singing. She, it's just so funny. I mean, I just love her so much. Yeah. But I know you do. So, my experience on that show, because <laughs> there would be like four of us that were over 18 and the rest were children. And I was on that show like very regularly. Like, that's the one that, like, you were that they sent me to. Meanwhile, you were having filet mignon and they would literally <laughs> tell us, All right, you guys, the nachos ran out, but we got some bowls if you want to fill a bowl up with cheese. And that was it. Like, I no can't. chips, no Cheerios, just a, just a push the button and liquid cheese will pour into a bowl. And then they'd be like, it's a walk away lunch unless you want the cheese. And then, and then I would walk to that McDonald's on Sunset and Vine or whatever, Sunset and Argyle, wherever that was, and get the two cheeseburger meal. But that was uh, literally... Tyler and Lauren would be like on their Blackberry with their filet mignon and I would be like, I don't have service and the cheese machine is out again. And I'm laughing like it sounds like this is a joke, but these were real text exchanges where I would be on Glee and I'd be like, oh, I'm eating to my heart's content having the best day. And Mike would be like, I finally just got service. I left the cave. They ran out of food at 9 a.m. I'm walking to McDonald's. I was like, oh, no. Literally. I forgot that they never fed us. Even if it was a location shoot, even if we went away from the studios. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't feed us. Um, Sucked at that. They did not treat you were well. Were you guys on, uh, again, like this will probably be cut or I will bleep out, but were you on the day that and got kicked off set? And me. Oh, it was you. It was the three of us. <laughs> it was the three of us. We Mike, jokingly- were you there? No. Oh, he wasn't. But it's funny that Laura was like, and me. Yes, no, because Mike, I'm sure I've told you this story. Ashley was on set with us, but she yeah. luckily wasn't there for I the scandal. I wasn't a troublemaker. And <laughs> I won't even go into the whole story because it's such a long, dumb story. But essentially, like, this PA had become, like, very friendly with us. A and little was, like, too chatting friendly, with us the to whole be night. Yeah, like, was, like, favoriting us all night, chatting with us. We were joking back and forth. There was sarcasm. There was, like, digs. Like, nothing seemed like we were crossing boundaries because he was giving he was it to us as much it. as we were giving it to him. Yeah, so. he was, like, flirting and joking with us. Then at one point, one of us says, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to slash your tires tonight so you can't leave. Like, again, I don't even, like, know how the topic came up, but that was the joke that was thrown out. And he goes, are you serious? And we all think he's joking. So we're like, yeah, we got our knives ready. We're going to slash your tires, so you better watch out. And he goes, okay, I just needed to confirm that you're serious. I'll be right back. He leaves, goes to talk to one of the head producers, and then somebody walks over and is like, we're going to have to escort you ladies off the lot. 
and we got kicked off for harassing this PA, even though we were like clearly joking. We don't even know what car he drives. I don't know where he parked. It was hilarious. I mean, less hilarious for you guys, um, obviously. We still got paid. If we had gotten kicked off and they were like, no pay, no nothing, then I would have been furious. But they're like, we'll still pay you for your time here. And I think we only missed out on like an hour. It was only an hour. That's the thing. It was like the end of the night. And I found out you guys still got paid. I was like, God damn it. Why wasn't I standing with them when they said the tire (laughs) slashing shit? I know. We got sent home early and we just like opened a bottle of wine, I remember. And I think when you got off, you came and met us and we all just like vented over wine. And we're like, well, we still got paid, but it was such garbage. I mean, that's like legit crazy. It's like I... Even the guy who was signing us out at the end of the night was like, yeah, he can be a lot, but we still have to follow our due diligence and let you go. I was like, okay, so we all know this guy sucks, but it's fine. Well, and like, not that, not that people can't, not that any kind of person can't do damage, but like, have you seen you? Really? You were going to go slash someone's tires? We all know. I think even the people who listen to this podcast know I would not slash anybody's tires. <laughs> I am not capable. I'm scared of literally everything. We're on too. So this isn't even like 30-year-old Warren. We were like no. baby girls. Guarantee I was 21. It, yeah. Like baby I girl I was. dresses. I was 21. Yeah, because it was a music. Yeah, you're video. like, hey, I'm gonna slash your tires with my fake ID because I'm just a child. <laughs> I'm a little- so. I know. I was trying to remember. Maybe I wasn't even 21. I was probably 20 with my fake ID and yeah, probably wearing like a floral sundress because it was. <laughs> and he's like, this girl's for sure coming after my car. I can't. Well, okay. Um, anywho, Gene Spangler did background is what we're getting at. <laughs> Yeah, 25 minutes later. And this story is about her strange unsolved disappearance. It was 1949. She was dancing primarily at Hollywood's Florentine Gardens, uh, which will come into play later. And by dancing, I don't mean stripping. It was sort of like a go-go dancer thing. Okay. So she nabbed some bit parts in movies like The Miracle of the Bells and The Young Man with the Horn, which I've never heard of either of those, but whatever. Mm-mm. But all of her credits are like Extra in Church, Hula Dancer, Showgirl, etc. So she never quite made it to where she wanted to be as a full named actress on a set. Right. Before this, she had been through what the LA Times referred to as a bad divorce and bitter custody battle. She had married a plastics manufacturer named Dexter Benner in 1942, but just six months after she filed for divorce, citing cruelty as the reason, which, okay. Interesting. But despite being divorced, they actually still had an on-again, off-again relationship for years that actually produced a child, a little girl named Christine, in 1944. And the man, Benner, actually had custody of the child. But after the court battle, Christine ended up with her mom, Jean. So Jean has the child. And uh, at the time, she was living with her mother um, in the Park La Brea apartments, actually. If you guys know where that is. Oh, wow. Been there many times. Over by the Grove. And where is the ex-husband? Where did he go to He still lived in uh, in L.A. somewhere. But he wasn't really really around. Okay. Okay. So there was that, that did happen, the divorce, the custody battle, etc. But that was all pretty much over by this day, Friday, October 7th, 1949. So this was back in 1944, basically. 
Okay. So five years later, Spangler left her five-year-old daughter with her sister-in-law, Sophie, for the night at her Park La Brea apartment. She left at 5.30 p.m. She came downstairs. She asked, like, how do I look? She told her little girl she was going to work, but she said it with a wink to her sister-in-law, which her sister-in-law, to, like, the day she died, didn't quite understand what the wink was. Oh. Because Jean did night shoots and stuff, so it wasn't weird to leave for work at 5.30 p.m., but, like, the wink, she didn't know what she was supposed to get from that wink. Right. Right. From her sister-in-law so yeah bizarre um also just to add her mom was out of town that week so Jean's mom um who she lived with was out of town at the time and just really quickly for those of you that don't know yes you do have to leave and be at places at 5 30 p.m even if you're going to shoot at like <laughs> 1 a.m there's just a whole lot of hurry up and wait and it's really long hours yes i just wanted to put that in thank there thank you for clarifying that <laughs> That's the LA way. We should do an Ask Me Anything episode on uh, background work. Oh my Just god! Get all our yes. background friends to come on <laughs> and tell about their yes, experience. That would be so. It's actually fun. a really funny idea. Well, I'll write it down. <laughs> uh, Jean called the apartment about two hours after she left to ask, you know, how's my daughter doing, and to tell Sophie not to expect her home until the next morning because she would be working a full eight-hour shift. But the Screen Extras Guild confirmed to investigators that Spangler had no call for work that night. So basically, that was her, like, extras booking. Like, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> what was ours called? Cut Above. Cut Above. Cut Above. Yeah, so it was her Cut Above casting. Cut Above basically said she didn't have work tonight, and she wasn't dancing at the gardens. So mm. when Spangler hadn't returned by Saturday night, Sophie called the police. On Sunday morning, a Griffith Park worker discovered a handbag that the police identified as Spangler's in the Ferndale area of the park. The handle was damaged, possibly a sign of struggle, and the bag contained a note written by Spangler that read, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way while Mother is gone. And that's the last trace of her we've ever found. There, What? Yeah, there wasn't enough evidence to qualify it as a murder case, even though authorities have admitted that they think that's what ultimately happened to her. They said that they found absolutely no sign that she would have skipped town, left her daughter, whom she loved, never spoke to her family again. They definitely don't think she's a runaway, but the fact that they never had any evidence of murder, it was technically a missing persons case, and there isn't even a case file remaining because of that classification. Because it was never classified as murder, so it's not, like, still something that's open and on file. Uh, well, golly, I need answers. So sad. That is crazy. It, Kirk? It's nuts. Is what yeah. it said? So they did have suspects, and we'll go over them. And if anyone who heard Kirk and went, Kirk Douglas, don't worry. Everyone thought that. <laughs> because he was the best known Kirk in the country at the time, I think. Right. He had to be. Yeah, probably. Kirk Cameron didn't so. exist. Had I know. Literally, when you said that, I was like, well, who else is Kirk? Kirk Cameron. Well, he's no, the first no. one that I went to. Captain Kirk. <laughs> yes. Yes, you did. But also because we talked around. about growing pains last week. That's true. Oh, yeah. No, this was 1949, so everyone thought Kirk Douglas. Uh-huh. And Spangler's mother, Jean's mother, remembered her daughter talking about a Kirk that she met on set, but she couldn't recall what studio, what set, what movie, because as you both know, you're on different sets every day. Like, you barely know the who, what, when. Like, God forbid your parents try to keep track 
of right. what show yeah. you're on. Yeah. So she didn't know uh, what set she was talking about. So uh, an actor friend named Robert Cummings, you may know him from Dial M for Murder, informed police that Spangler had told him a week prior to her disappearance that she was involved in a new romance. And when he asked her if it was serious, she said, not exactly, but I'm having the time of my life. Now, did she ever work with Kirk Douglas? Yes. And... Yes, the police did speak to him. Um, They called him and spoke to him over the phone. He had been vacationing in Palm Springs, not the night of the murder, mind you, Uh, (gasps) but he was vacationing in Palm Springs. He told the detective he didn't remember the girl or the name. But then... Yeah, right. Then he called back and was like, oh, yeah, I was talking to a friend who recalled that she worked as an extra in a scene with me in Young Man with a Horn. He then remembered that she was a tall girl in a green dress and that, quote, I talked and kidded with her a bit on the set, as I have done with many other people, but I never saw her before or after and I've never been out with her. Hmm. Sounds like studio cleanup to me. Uh, possibly. I heard that. The identity of Kirk is still a mystery to this day. No one knows who it is, but yes, there's totally a chance that it was Kirk Douglas because they did work together. She was in this new relationship that was sort of secretive, and she did come home and talk to her mom about a Kirk. Could have been him. No evidence that it was. Another suspect they had was obviously the husband. Um, Of course. Suspect numero uno, husband. Um, And we all know statistically murders are most often committed by a person close to the victim. So, And he was the person that had the most to gain, as far as we can tell. That is her husband, um, or ex-husband, Dexter Benner. He was very vocal about wanting custody of their daughter. When police questioned Dexter, he said he hadn't seen Spangler for weeks, and they couldn't find any evidence to refute his claim. Like, everything seemed to check out. It really didn't seem like they'd seen each other for weeks. He did end up with custody of the girl in a battle... Uh, against Jean Spangler's mother after she'd been missing for like a year and I'm sure that was very hard for her and he left California with her with his daughter and his new wife and police never found any evidence he was involved with her disappearance so Hmm. maybe not but here's where it gets fun as fun as any murder can be sure another suspect had to be the mysterious Dr. Scott so Spangler's note referenced to Dr. Scott, although her, her sister didn't recognize the name and they talked a lot. At a press conference, Detective Lieutenant Harry Didion confirmed the existence of a physician named Scott, saying he was known to Miss Spangler and her nightclubbing friends. I suppose hinting at the fact that he may have done some procedures for women yeah. who like to dance at night. Okay. But All right. the police never located a Dr. Scott, and every single LA physician named Dr. Scott was questioned. None of them had a Jane Spangler on the books or claimed to know her. So they wondered if Dr. Scott was, in fact, the kind of doctor the lieutenant was referencing. And for anyone who's not following what I'm laying on so thick, I'm saying that Dr. Scott was a nickname for a doctor who provided illegal abortions to women at the time. Mm-hmm. Doctors like George Hodel, who... So this was probably just, like, a total, like, nickname, like, he was just a mystery. Possibly. But do you know who George Hodel is? 
No. He 100,000 million percent murdered Elizabeth Short in 1947, and he's the Black Dahlia killer. Like, oh, wait, no is this doubt. the guy whose son mm-hmm. basically was like, it's my dad? Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, then it's definitely this guy. I have no doubts that he killed him. At this point of my life, I'm like, that's the Black Dahlia killer. I you, It would be harder to convince yes. me otherwise than to convince me that it's him. Like, I do believe it was him. I didn't remember that name, but when we were talking about all the evidence that has come up against him and even his own son saying, I really think it was my father, yeah. I 100% His son and his him. daughter, both of them think it was yeah. him, but... So you think this guy could have been kind of up that same yeah. alley? Well, the thing is, the thing about the Black Dahlia murder is everyone's like, it was a one and done. No, it was not, because whoever committed that murder, that murder, that batshit bananas murder, that's not a one-off. That's not no, something that's not like, I'll all. try it. Not the way they did it. No. It was so, like, down to a science and, like, posed in such a specific way. It's like, you knew what you were yeah. doing. And this man, uh, George Hodel, in my opinion, was a serial killer, and he had access to women who could disappear, like young people who moved here from the Midwest, you know, young women trying to be in Hollywood who could very easily disappear without their parents knowing. By the time their parents knew, it would be too late. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, women who were living on the streets, obviously, he, he had access to, but also he had the resources to get away with it. He had the money. He also performed abortions for any cop with the LAPD that fucked around on his wife and had, you know, a problem. So the LAPD were in his pocket. That's like documented. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he killed multiple times. And here's the thing. Spangler's purse was found a quarter of a mile away from the Souden house, which is a famous L.A. landmark and also George Hodel's residence. It was found a quarter of a mile from his house. Oh, great. Oh. Yep. Um, uh, (laughs) Oh. I loved the oak. A popular radio DJ at the time named Al the Sheik Lazar reported seeing Spangler at at a Sunset Strip restaurant at about 2.30 a.m. And uh, he was familiar enough with her to approach her to try and say hi. And he said that she appeared to be arguing with two men at a table. And when he approached, the men waved him away. We're basically like, get the fuck out of here. So she was in an argument with two men at this table at 2.30 in the morning, the night that she was last seen. Um, Dang. The owner of the restaurant, Terry Taylor, reported seeing Spangler earlier that evening with a clean-cut fellow with a mustache who was about 35 or 40. A gas station attendant working near the Sunset Strip reported a man and woman matching Spangler's description. They came into the station in a blue-ish, gray-ish, dark convertible early that morning. The man bought gas and told uh, Rogers that they were heading to Fresno, but as they pulled off, the woman shrank down in the passenger seat and cried out, have the police follow this car. And Rogers did call the police, but by the time they responded, the trail was cold. They didn't know where the car had gone. Dang flabber. We're not even sure if it was Spangler, but it matched her description. And that's kind of a weird coincidence. But Steve Hodell, who is the retired LAPD detective who actively believes his father is a Black Dahlia murderer, totally believes Gene Spangler was another victim of his father. He says the description of the man that she was seen with matches his dad at the time. Um, that his dad at that time owned and drove a 1936 blackish gray Picard convertible sedan resembling the one that the gas station attendant 
had described. That vehicle also matches descriptions of cars leaving the Elizabeth Short crime scene, just FYI. Hmm. Hodel hmm. also claims that his older brother Duncan noted that their father had dated a gorgeous actress type named Jean um, in the 40s. Okay, well, come on. But I do have to say, though, that you have to take what Steve Hodel says with a grain of salt because he wrote the book. Um, he wrote a very compelling argument that his father was a Black Dahlia murderer, like super compelling, hard to dismiss evidence of the things that he found in his father's possession. He was probably totally right. But then he went on to write another book saying his dad was also the Zodiac. Okay. So is Steve okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> like George Hodel was like almost, I'm almost positive he was the Black Dahlia killer. There's no way he was a fucking Zodiac killer. Like there's no, no possible. It's just that's not. a big old reach. That doesn't matter. No. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Like for example, Wait, yeah, Ashley, so what do you like what do you think? So you think that I guess I'm getting I'm getting a little turned around at the with the car story. So if yeah. she's like shrinking down in the car and she's like, "Help, help, police follow this car." And he said they were going to Fresno, which mm-hmm. like wherever he said they were going, that is irrelevant really cuz they don't have to go anywhere. Right. But so you think that was Dr. Scott. Yeah. But the one who ultimately would kill her. Yeah. 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 If that had been her that was in the car, uh, the woman that matched the description screaming out for help in the car. And what was going on right now? So if you don't know anything about George Hodel, I highly recommend you go read about it because that whole thing is so crazy. But he was a surgeon um, in Hollywood at the time. Like I said, he had the LAPD in his pocket. Like, they have literal recordings of him confessing to murdering one of his old... I don't remember if she was a maid or an assistant or something. Like, literally on tape, confessing to murdering her. Nothing was ever done to him. He got away completely scotch-free. And um, he was a surgeon. And whoever did what they did to uh, Elizabeth Short... I mean, they had to be a surgeon. Like, the cuts were so pristine. They knew exactly where to dissect a body. They knew exactly where organs were. It had to be a doctor. And this guy loved, like, expressionist paintings. He loved, like, um, literally, you can see the artwork that he had at his home. And it was, like, women in different pieces. Like, not Mm -hmm. cut up, but, like, sectioned in different pieces. Like... They looked right. like the Dahlia. It is mm-hmm. wild. Like I, I know it was him um, that killed the Black Dahlia. I don't know that it was him that killed Jean Spangler, but there are other um, reasons why it might have been. So, this was just one other thing I was going to say about um, Steve Hodel, who was the doctor's son, uh, retired LAPD sergeant. He attributed 10 or 11 deaths to his father in like the 40s, in the 30s and 40s in Los Angeles, uh, including Elizabeth Short. And some of them are super compelling. Some of them are like, oh, shit, I actually think this might be another Dahlia. Yeah, I think this might be it. And then some of them are just like. Like one of them, her name's Jeannie French. Um, in 1947, she was found at a construction site, beaten to death, um, in a case known as the Red Lipstick Murder. And in Red Lipstick, someone had wrote on her body, "Fuck PD," which to me oh. says "Fuck Police Department," right? 
Right. That's what I would say. And underneath that, it said Tex, like signed Tex. And Steve mm. O'Dell claimed it was BD, as in Black Dahlia, which mm, it, it, it it's not. It's PD. And he also had no exp- explanation for the Tex part. Yeah. And she was found stomped to death with shoe prints on her body that were a size six or seven, and George Hodel's feet were much larger. Larger, you know. So it's like so it just doesn't doesn't add up. up. So it's hard to like with a grain <laughs> of salt if you take That's what fair. Steve Hodel has to say. He does say it's my belief that Gene uh, Spangler started dating my dad either in late September or early October. He was arrested for incest on October sixth. Oh. And, uh, George George Hodel. <laughs> I'm just no, I'm not the laughing doctor. at the situation. I just love Mike's reaction. Who? <laughs> who? Who was it? <laughs> George. George Hodel um, very famously uh, raped his daughter Tamar. Again, this is read about him because he's a monster. Um. And produced a child with her, which is (gasps) horrible. No. Hi, Ashley here with some new information I learned after recording this episode. So in 2019, DNA testing was done by the podcast Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. It was a simple test and it showed that Fauna Hodel's parents were not related so it was finally proven that george hodell her grandfather was not her father unfortunately fauna had passed two years prior still believing her father to be her grandfather george hodell her mother tamar had also passed in 2015 she went to her grave insisting that the sexual and physical abuse by her father was real and also believing he was the father of fauna Obviously, there are a lot of elements at play. George Hodel could be the father of Fauna and not actually the father of Tamar, for example. But with both women um, passed on, it's very unlikely that more testing is going to be done. I'm going to post a ton of links on our Patreon to accompany this episode. Uh, It will be free, no donation necessary. It's just a good place to post all this stuff together. So you can find it at www.patreon.com slash keepitweirdpodcast if you want to read more about the Hodels and other cases that we discuss on this episode. How is that child doing? There was actually a, a, a TV show, you didn't see it, with um, Chris no. Pine and, oh, the girl that plays the child is so wonderful. It was on, hold on, it was on Hulu, Chris, Chris Pine. I'm surprised if it had Chris Pine, I didn't watch it because I adore it him. It was called like We Own the Night, or The Night, no, hold on. Um, Yeah, so it's called I Am the Night. In the early 1960s, a teenage girl looking for her real father and a disgraced journalist seeking closure find themselves drawn into a web of secrets revolving around L.A.'s most most infamous case, the Black Dahlia. Ah. And basically, it's George Hodel's, you know, uh, daughter that they sold, essentially. They literally gave her to someone. (sighs) And was raised... Well, honestly, I'm glad they did, because she did not need to be in that environment. Yeah, she probably made it out okay. But anyway, so um, to finish this story, 
<laughs> so he got arrested. George Hodel got arrested for incest on October 6th and bailed out that exact same day. Then the night of her disappearance, which was the very next night, she was seen talking to this guy in the restaurant. They're arguing. And Steve Hodel believes that she knew something that possibly his father was driven to kill her following an argument over the charges of incest filed by his mm. daughter Tamar. Yeah. I don't know. But Stephen Hodel did get clearance to look for forensics at the Soudan house in 2012. He hired a retired police sergeant named Paul Dosti to walk the property with his dog Buster. And doing during two searches in November of 2012 and September of 2013, Dosti recovered soil samples from the basement and the slope behind the house where Buster indicated the smell of human remains. And forensic anthropologist Arpad Voss tested samples and identified the presence of human remains in the soil. And based oh. on the chemical distribution, he believes human remains most likely could be found in an area uh, slightly adjacent to the Souden House lot. But an ex Damn. intensive search has never been allowed of the property. Ugh, but why? Well, the LAPD we must know. brushed off the findings. Um, the house itself is an L.A. landmark, Ugh. I believe. I believe it's a place that's like so? not allowed to be torn down. It's a landmark. Um, it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh. It's a beautiful house. One of the I mean, American sure. America's Next Top Model seasons, they stayed in this house. Oh, hell yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> but so... The LAPD brushed it off and were like, we're not tearing up the house. Um, at the time that this happened, um, the house was owned by Laura Prepon from that 70s show and Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Alex Voss. Yeah. And she actually denied his request to sweep the property, to, like, tear up the property as well. Like, she allowed the initial, like, search and the sniffing, but, like, she didn't allow them to, like, tear up her yard. So Laura is also covering up the she murder might be, is what is Ashley what I'm is saying. saying. Everybody take what that. I'm saying Laura Prepon did be. it. <laughs> <laughs> she no longer owns it, though. The place is now owned by a guy named Dan Goldfarb who made his money selling weed to pets, which is awesome. <laughs> I was not Hollywood. what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> it's the but I loved that ending. <laughs> Holly weird, yeah. am I right? Now, last thing, another interesting thing to note. Remember earlier I mentioned that Jean Spangler was a dancer at Florentine Gardens? Yes. Yes. So when Elizabeth Short's belongings were found in a dumpster in downtown L.A., there was a little brown address book with the name Mark M. Hansen stamped on the cover. And Mark M. Hansen was the owner of Florentine Gardens at the time. <gasps> and Elizabeth Short and her friends uh, rented rooms from him in his home behind the gardens just when they needed a place to stay. And Florentine Gardens is, is a nightclub. Elizabeth Short liked those and obviously knew the owner, so she more than likely spent a good amount of time there. And so did Jane Spangler, being a dancer there. So when the day comes that the Souden house can be properly searched, we may find the body of Jane Spangler. Um, but... To this day, honestly, that's the biggest lead we have. Other Dang. than that, it's like, I don't know. I must know what happened. Was this Mark Hansen guy ever questioned at all? Oh, I'm sure he was questioned. I, I know he was but questioned. But it just led to nothing. That just felt like such a like big thing to be connected to both women. And then it's like, well, guess he's fine. Well, I'm but. sure that they're basically trying to say that that's a connection between the two women and maybe... Um, 
maybe George Hodel spent time there. But Mark M. Hansen, I don't know if he was questioned Gene Spangler's death, but I know he was questioned in Elizabeth Short's death. With Elizabeth death. Short. Yeah. Which I mean, and maybe he is totally innocent, and it's more that the Florentine Gardens was the connection than him, but that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, so Elizabeth Short was 1947, and this was 1949. Dang. I don't think I ever realized those were so close together, because I knew a little bit about Gene Spangler, but obviously you just, you revealed a whole lot, but I don't think I knew they were that close together, and that makes me even more excited, and I can't wait to, like, <laughs> dig in even more. This is crazy. I know, I can't wait to read and learn all about this time period and just more about what was going on, because I feel like this is so, so fascinating. And I must say, like, you did a great job presenting that information, Ashley. Thank you. You I know the answer from Lauren, but Mike, did you watch American Horror Story season one? Um, With Connie Britton, yes. Okay, yeah. So, um, uh, oh, shit. Who played the Black Dahlia in that? Mina Suvari played the Black Dahlia Uh, in season one. Yes, yes, yes. And the doctor that owned that house basically was the George Hodel character, how he would take women there and perform abortions and occasionally rape and murder them. Um, Yeah, so that was like the George Hodel storyline. Yeah. Got it. I need to rewatch that. And now especially like after this, I need to watch it with like that lens. Right. I also highly recommend I Am the Night. It was a really compelling story, even without the George Hodel, Black Dahlia part of it. Even just like the young girl looking for her real. Basically, she finds out she's adopted and she's like 18. She finds out she's adopted and she just wants to go find her real mother and father. And then to find out that your mother was raped by her own father. And your father is your grandfather. Like, that's just... Like, that like, I can't even. Uh, what do you even do with what that? What do you do with that? Like, how do you... Do you even want to know? I understand now why so many people who have been, you know, adopted have decided, I don't want to know. Yeah. Because you sometimes don't want to uncover the truth and see the darkness that is your biological Yeah, family. it could be totally nothing. And it could be something like yeah. this where it's like, holy shit. Yeah, and like kind of circling back to where we first started with these stories, mm-hmm. with the when the when they saw him on the movie screen and it was they were like, oh my gosh, like he's in Hollywood, he didn't come back. Like I think me at that moment, a part of me feels like I would be like, well, if he doesn't want to be here, then that farewell. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think I don't know if my curiosity or like anger would come up, or if I would just be like, okay. That sucks that you didn't want to be here. See you never. Not interested, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you don't want to be a part of this family, then why should we be investing and worrying about you? Like, good riddance. Right. True. Jeez, oh man. (sighs) Yeah, it was a lot. I do still have one more story, (laughs) but this has already been a long episode, and those were both, like, such heavy stories that I'm like, do we go on or do we save Thelma for something else? Where are we at? Um, Honestly, it's up to you. Like, I don't mind having a long episode if you think, you know... I mean, I don't think it's going to be, like, another 40 minutes. I mean, who knows with us chatting? True. Maybe Maybe if we can behave ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we can just do it, and if the episode gets too it, out of man. control, then we we figure it out. April 2021. Let's just do it. That's right. 
Okay, so the final story of tonight is the mysterious death of Thelma Todd. And it would be really great if me and Ashley were cool enough to plan ahead that, like, we went in chronological order. We were in the 20s and then the 40s, and then maybe I would be in the 60s. But we're going back to the 30s, so I'm really sorry, everybody. (laughs) I thought thought maybe we were doing it right. We did our best. (laughs) We tried. Insert time travel music here. (laughs) Yes, as we travel back to 1935. Okay, setting the scene once again as before. So it's 10.30 a.m. on the morning of Monday, December 16th, 1935. A woman named Mae Whitehead is approaching a garage where she was supposed to drop off her personal car and pick up the Lincoln belonging to her boss, who was 29-year-old actress Thelma Todd. Todd was a very famous actress at the time in the late 20s and 30s. Some of her well-known movies included, I didn't know any of these. I want to be completely honest and not sound like I'm like Miss Old Hollywood. I had never heard of this woman. I just thought her story was fascinating. She was in a movie called The Bohemian Girl, The Hot Heiress, um, a movie called Palooka, and many, many more. Go ahead and look her up. Take they a minute. They made a lot of movies back then. They really did. She was in a lot of shorts, too. I saw, like, when I was looking up some of them, there were, like, little 20-minute shorts she was in and then feature lengths, and she was all over the place, but she was extremely famous at the time. So Mae Whitehead, this woman, was Thelma's maid, who was tasked with picking up Thelma's car every morning and bringing it down to the sidewalk cafe that Thelma owned. It was a restaurant that she actually lived right above in the Hollywood Hills, and she lived there with her boyfriend at the time, Roland West. So May noticed absolutely nothing unusual about the scene at first. She pulled up and was walking towards the car until she sees her boss, Thelma Todd, slumped over in the car's front seat, still wearing the same clothes she had been wearing on the night of December 14th, two nights earlier, when she went to a party at Hollywood's Trocadera nightclub. May said she initially thought Thelma was just sleeping, but she quickly realized when she got closer that something was horribly wrong. Thelma was dead in her car. And although official case records will tell you that she accidentally died of carbon monoxide poisoning, being inside the garage in the running car, this accidental death is highly debatable. And it has been decades since her passing, but numerous theories have developed since then, and rumors were circulating at the time about how she could have actually died, and there just was not enough evidence to prove any of them at the time. So here are the facts we know for sure before we dive into the theories, because I feel like that's important. Yeah. So Saturday, December 14th, Thelma went to this party at the Trocadera nightclub. As I said, Thelma was actually the guest of honor. It was thrown for her by some friends. And for the vast majority of the night, she seemed to be having a great time. Nobody noticed anything crazy. During the party, Thelma did have a brief encounter with her ex-husband, Pat DiCicco, who was also an actor and a big movie producer at the time. And he had alleged ties to the mob. Sources vary on whether or not that encounter was friendly. Some say they were totally fine and they hugged and others were like, oh, no, they were fighting. It was awful. Blah, blah, blah. So that's all rumors. But just take that for what it is. Then Roland West, her boyfriend at the time, did not go to the party and told Thelma to be home by 2 a.m. Thelma arrived at the party at 8.25 p.m. And at 1.50 a.m., she asked Sid Grauman little name drop there to call Roland (laughs) a big old name drop there she asked Sid Grauman to call Roland West and let him know that she would be leaving soon to get home by that 2 a.m. time but Thelma didn't end up leaving the party until 3 15 a.m. 
Thelma arrived at home at about 3.45 a.m. Her chauffeur, Ernest Peters, is the last person known to see her alive. Known to see her alive, because there are rumors. Right. Um, and he drove away. But Thelma's body was discovered in her Lincoln by her maid, May Whitehead, on the morning of Monday, December 16th. So, like, a full day later. Thelma definitely died of carbon monoxide poisoning and must have been alive when she entered the garage. That is the belief. So, at this point, it's highly unlikely we will ever know what happened, right. of course, to Thelma Todd. It's been too long. But between 3.45 a.m. on December 15th and 10.30 a.m. December 16th, something went down. And everyone directly involved with the case and the original investigation is now dead. And all we're left with is the recorded statements and just basically rumors that were circulating. So there is still always going to be this huge debate. First of all, let's look at the accident theory. It seems like a perfectly reasonable theory. It's carbon monoxide poisoning. It was a cold winter's night. Maybe she got locked out of her house. She walked to the garage to warm herself up, making the fatal mistake of leaving the garage door shut, blah, blah, blah. So even in California, a December night could be chilly, so it's not that crazy. But once you look closer at it, the accidental death theory didn't really hold up because... Basically, she even if she had gone to warm up in the closed garage, um, it was a huge campaign, I guess, at the time, which I didn't know this, but people were dying of carbon monoxide poisoning on accident all the time in like the late 20s and early 30s. I think it must have been when you were like first discovering this even existed. So there were campaigns all over the city telling you not to do this constantly. So she would have heard about it. She would have heard it, so about at it most, like, multiple times. Or yeah, at most it would have been like suicide. Exactly. Purposeful... Like she would have had the knowledge. Right. It's yeah. weird. It's weird that she'd be like, this is fine. And also even on top of that, like not even just the campaign, she had a huge interest in cars. She loved cars. She like was really into them, wanted to have the nicest cars, like talking about cars. So even more so it's like, honey, you knew. So if it was, you know, this, if it if was just carbon no monoxide poisoning, relieving play. it at that, then it was probably yeah. suicide. So the other thing is the biggest evidence against the accidental theory is that the condition of Thelma's shoes and her hair were basically still perfection. And the night after the party, when she would have gotten home, it was very, very windy um, and very, very cold. And her hair was still perfectly neatly styled when she was found in the car. And she would have had to spend a significant amount of time outside to walk to her car. Because unlike most people's garages who are, they have them right next to the house. All of us do. Hers was like a hike. She had to walk, I believe it was, she had to climb 270 stairs that sucks. to oh. get from her house to her garage. It was like a totally separate building on her, like, million, not millions, her acres of I land. would never go anywhere. Never. <laughs> Who wants to walk there? And, like, the stairs, they weren't, like, stair stairs. They were, like, dirt. So it's, like, her shoes would have been dirty. She would have had crazy windblown hair, but she looked, like, perfected. So there was a theory going around for a while. Like, maybe she got locked out of the house and walked down to the garage to keep warm. But it was, like, oh. no, she was in really good condition. She would have had to have gone, like, straight to the garage. And also her key was found in her purse. So that theory was kind of, like, eh, maybe not. So then people said, well, maybe suicide. Again, we kind of covered that. She would have known about carbon monoxide poisoning. She knows cars, so maybe she was doing this to herself. Near the end of the party, it was reported that she received an upsetting message from an unknown person. 
Um, she had been receiving letters, I guess, the weeks leading up to this threatening her. She potentially had a stalker Yikes. and that somebody was like trying to do her in. Yeah. And also there is the rumor that her encounter with her ex-husband was very negative. We don't know if that's true, but that was the rumor. Um, and also the chauffeur the, dr- the who drove her home that night said Thelma was unusually quiet in the car and told him she did not need an escort to her door that night as she usually did. Wait, so, so she had someone drive her home and then she got into another car? She had well, the chauffeur drive her home, but then it's not known if she went to straight to the garage or to the house. The chauffeur drove off because she I said, see. don't walk me to okay, my door. So she didn't so that's drive where it's her unknown. cell phone. Because that's what I was wondering. I was no. like, maybe she was really, really drunk, which she could have been if she had a driver. Totally. And she she had been drinking that yeah, night, but party. people said she didn't seem intoxicated. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the chauffeur dropped her off. But again, then this report came out later where it was like, oh, I normally walk her to her door, but she said not to. Uh, so then it's like, where did she go to when he yeah. dropped her off? Did she walk straight to her door? Did she go to the garage? Where where did she head? So um, there were some bizarre things circling that. So the chauffeur said because she was quiet and didn't want an escort, that kind of played into maybe she was in a really bad place. And it could have been suicide, but... Most of the friends around her, really people in her like core circle said all of her behavior indicated that she was looking forward to the future. She was in a happy place. Her film career was just at its peak and there was just no way she would do this. So they are debunking this totally, but it's not impossible. Well, I was going to say, what if the chauffeur made <gasps> that up because he had a car and he would have he he had a car right obviously he's a chauffeur yeah. so he drives up to her garage and puts her there which is why she wasn't like dirty and disheveled yeah he like set her right in yeah and he because maybe she was like a little intoxicated and he was like hey do you want me to come in and she's like no don't don't do that and he like was trying to force it and then she was like no and then he like killed her by accident or whatever and then Mike, I love it. And then put her body up there. Mike, I love it. I'm so made, proud of you right now. And, and I love this up, theory. And he made up that she said, like, oh, I don't need an escort because he was trying to, like, you know, obviously make sure he looked innocent and, like, he yeah, couldn't have right. participated. Because I just feel yes, like if Michael. the garage was so far away, you would need someone with a car to get her up there if she was still right. looking so clean. And he's a chauffeur. He obviously has a car. I know. That's like the most confusing thing of it is that he dropped her off. I think it sounds like it's at the end of her driveway. And so it's like, even if she went straight up to her house, like she would have been in so many ways, she would have been disheveled from the wind and like the dirt that's up in the Hollywood Hills. So I'm like, it seems like either he, as you said, like did was involved somehow and made sure she stayed pristine and took her straight to the car in her garage or somebody else met her almost instantly and like mm-hmm. brought her to the car but we're about to jump yeah, into some more i'll send theory, so. you this link because there's all kinds of pictures in this link of that i property. found yeah did yes you see them? i was okay. gonna i have that pulled up on my notes and i was actually gonna send it to you to post when this episode gets released so our listeners can kind of understand yeah because you see the stairs and it starts to like make sense now it's very um, it is confusing. very los angeles it's very like hollywood hills house <laughs> yeah, like everything's yeah. like raised but no i was literally gonna send it to you and like allow for our listeners to have a visual while i told the story because it does sound bizarre 
It but sounds like who would walk 270 yes. steps to get It's all spread house. out. And it also, I think if you're looking at the right picture, it shows like where her like cafe is too and yes. how it's all like connected. Yeah. But yes. Okay. Murder. So then, yeah. So we accidental suicide and then the murder theories come in. So if Thelma Todd's death wasn't accidental or suicide, that leaves murder or natural causes because of course there had to be the initial speculation of, well, maybe she died of a heart attack, but... No, that was ruled out quickly. It was carbon monoxide poisoning. Natural causes were gone. Um, officers found no signs of a struggle or robbery. Thelma was found wearing all of her expensive jewelry that she had worn to the party, and there weren't any signs of injury aside from a small amount of blood believed to come from her lip from when her head hit the steering wheel, which just points to the poisoning. It didn't seem like a fight had ensued or anything too crazy. But the possibility of murder actually came into the picture almost immediately because Thelma's mother, Alice, arrived at the garage on December 16th and said, my daughter was absolutely murdered. She wouldn't have done this to herself. This wouldn't have been an accident, yada, yada, yada. But then for whatever reason, like a couple months later, she said, nope, never mind. It's just an accident. And like went back on her statement completely and nobody ever found out why. So that was a little fishy. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that Thelma may have gone somewhere else between the time her chauffeur dropped her off at home and the time her maid discovered her body, which this is like a very strong theory because, you know, there's just so much time in between the, like when she was dropped off and it just, it doesn't seem right that she was there the whole time. But during the autopsy, the medical examiner found that she had undigested peas in her stomach. Peas? Some peas. And a blood alcohol level of 0.13 at the time of death. And although Thelma had a couple of drinks at the party, by all accounts, it wasn't enough to get her drunk. As I said before, she was drinking, she was having a good time, but, like, nobody would have called her intoxicated. Like, she knew when to go home. But the coroner who examined Thelma said that that kind of blood alcohol level would have stupefied her with just, like, the size of her body and, you know, all the things. Nobody at the party remembered her seeing her eat peas. And I'm sorry for laughing, but like who was just eating peas? It makes me laugh. That's my go-to party snack. <laughs> A Hollywood starlet who needs to look skinny on screen. Yeah. Right. Peas only. Peas only diet. Nobody remembered seeing her eat peas during the evening, but that was what was in her stomach, still just starting to digest at the time of her death. So this throws off the theory that she died between the hours of 6 and 8 a.m. on December 15th, which is what police believed at first. So could Thelma have gone somewhere else where she was served peas and a lot of alcohol? (laughs) If someone had picked her up and taken her out again, it would explain how she ended up in the garage with perfectly neat hair and shoes. So the idea that she went somewhere else after being dropped off um, also adds up with um, some of the other theories from friends. So Thelma was set to attend a party on December 15th, the next night after the Trocadero bash. And it was thrown by this woman named Martha Ford. Um, So Martha says she received a phone call from a woman she believed to be Thelma saying she was on her way and she was coming with a surprise guest. But Thelma never made it to this party. So was Martha mistaken about the identity of the caller? Or was she truly on her way and then something horrific happened? Did Thelma ever really try to go to this party? So that was one sort of bizarre thing that happened the day after the Trocadero. And then another woman who was like an acquaintance of 
Thelma told police that she had seen Thelma in the passenger seat of a car being driven by a very mysterious man. Um, But her claims were highly questionable because she said Thelma was wearing a hat. She was 100% certain she saw Thelma in a hat in the car with this mystery man. But no hat was found on the body, anywhere near the body, or like anywhere in the house matching the description that the woman said. So that also could have been mistaken identity, but still a strange thing that was thrown out. Yeah. Um, another thing that was talked about was that Thelma was mostly a very well-liked woman in Hollywood, but she wasn't necessarily loved by all. She was receiving very threatening anonymous messages. Um, the person responsible for the letters, I guess, eventually was arrested and imprisoned and was believed to actually be in jail for an unrelated charge at the time of her death. So they sort of ruled that out, but it still seems a little questionable. And um, her chauffeur even stated in the past that she'd asked him to drive as quickly as possible because she was worried about kidnapping attempts from either this stalker or from other people that were threatening her. So Thelma did have a lot of enemies. She was always very weird about it, wanted to be protected, wanted to be escorted places, which again makes it strange when the chauffeur says she didn't want me to walk her to the door, but... Also, the fact that Thelma had a restaurant, which attracted many celebrity visitors, also made her a target for gangsters and people of the mob, as I mentioned earlier, that her ex-husband had ties to because they would maybe want to set up illegal activity in her restaurant, start some gambling, start a little casino. But she was adamant she didn't want any part of it, and this could have also given her more enemies on top of the weird stalker she already had. So this leads into the most popular theory that this famous mobster named Lucky Luciano, um, it is believed by most people that he is in charge of her death. Because around the time of her death, Luciano was operating out of Los Angeles trying to gain a foothold in Hollywood's illegal gambling group. And Thelma Todd's restaurant was at one point a prime location that he had asked to set up shop through some of his little cronies. Thelma's ex-husband, Pat DiCicco, had mob ties, so it's very plausible that she might have crossed paths with Luciano at some point and had meetings about the restaurant. Um, It is rumored that Thelma had dinner with Luciano at one point in which she stormed off after screaming at him and he was just left flustered alone in a restaurant. Again, we don't know if this is true, but is it possible they had a meeting, she turned him down, yelled at him, embarrassed him, and maybe he put a hit out on her. What? <laughs> I heard you gasp. Were you going to say something? I wonder. Usually, I feel like mob hits are pretty like, we'll shoot you in the head. Yeah. Right. It wouldn't be you know what I necessarily mean? that in the car. But way. I don't know that. So I'm Googling it. So go on. I'm just going to okay. see mob <laughs> hits. Um, also, another thing to tie Luciano, he abruptly left Los Angeles about a week after Thelma's death and never returned. So that's Uh, something to chew on. Well, sure. Yeah, that's like... (laughs) So it's like, well, well, is it him? Probably. Um, He's not the only suspect in her death. Roland West, the boyfriend at the time, later actually tried to claim he was responsible for her death, which again brings us back to my first story where we're like, why are you all claiming that you did it, you fools? But everyone actually doubted him because... His version of events that led up to her body had total inconsistencies and contradictions. He was just clearly trying to make a name for himself. Again, it's like all what we were saying earlier. Everyone just wanted to throw their hat in the ring and like 
be somebody. So he tried to come up with his own story, but it just did not quite add up with what police were finding. So even many of Thelma's friends had reason to believe that West probably wasn't involved, even though he also had ties to the mafia and was more open to the idea of mobsters coming into the restaurant. But that just leads me to believe that like the mob was out to get her in general. And it wasn't necessarily like Roland snapping his fingers and doing it. But some theories suggest that Roland and some gangsters were waiting for her to come home so they could settle the casino matter. Who knows? And maybe they, they were the ones that picked her up and fed her peas and alcohol and then threw her in the car. But um, whatever the case, the mob tie is the most likely one. It could have also been the chauffeur. It could have also been Pat DeChico, the ex. It could have been so many things. It is very much believed that it was foul play as much as you could rule it as a suicide. And that's not totally out of the realm of possibility if she had been having a rough night. It just really seems like she was a happy person in general. And if anything, it seemed like she was more scared of who she was going to meet at her house when she got home than like sad and in despair and like uh, it's time to take my life it more seemed like I have enemies and people who are coming after me and maybe her asking her chauffeur not to walk her in was like I don't want you to be a part of this danger I'm about to get into because I know I'm about to be met with like this really tough meeting Hmm. from my ex-husband and these mob guys I don't know that's sort of where my head goes I absolutely think it was a mafia man who was involved, but um, I think it would also explain why the mom suddenly didn't want to talk about it anymore. Remember how I mentioned before that she was like, my daughter was definitely murdered. And then she said, oh, no, it was probably an accident. I guess Roland did the same thing. Like he... um, like was all about like oh it was me it was this and this but then suddenly like would backtrack on things and be like oh never mind um it was probably an accident she was having a tough time and it's like this happened to several friends and family members of Thelma constantly in the next few years as the investigation was unfolding like people would come forward they would give their information which helped because they were learning timelines and stories and who was close to her but there was always a little bit of backtracking then that would be like oh never mind I'm gonna shut up about it so the public speaking regarding the case eventually just like came to a complete stop were these people silenced by the mob were they you know suddenly just forgetting things we don't know but it will always remain a mystery and you can interpret it how you'd like yeah I mean the the problem with I'm, it's still happening today with people in Hollywood is it was especially bad back then for women um, because you would take pills to sleep, then you would take pills to stay awake, mm-hmm. and your hours on set were unreasonable, and you didn't eat because you had to keep your shape. You only ate peas. Yeah, you did. You only ate peas. Like, you didn't have a personal trainer. You just didn't. Most of them didn't eat. Yeah. And you hear this horrifying stories from these women about how, especially if they had a little bit of alcohol, I mean, they blacked out all the time. Right. Because they literally were on pills to keep them awake or asleep, depending on the time of day. Right. And yeah. they didn't eat. And sometimes they would literally just pass out. Yeah. So it literally And that's like what the coroner was saying with her blood alcohol level. He's like, she would have been like out of her mind. So I think someone was like intentionally trying to knock her out, whether they like force fed her the alcohol or were like 
schmoozing her up and like getting her to drink the alcohol but somebody it seems like someone was trying to like get her into a vulnerable state but man it's very sad sad. i would love to know the truth i know it seemed like she really had her whole future ahead of her like not only with her acting career but like she loved her little sidewalk cafe and i guess her because if you remember this was mid-december her trunk the trunk of her car that she was found in was filled with Christmas presents for her friends and family that she was going to deliver in the next week. And right, so it, it definitely just, didn't seem it doesn't like seem a like person suicide. who was yeah. It doesn't. It seems like she was like ready to live her happy life, but someone was like terrifying her and was after her. So it's very sad and also very frustrating that we'll never know exactly who it was. Man, oh man. All right. Yeah. Well, well. Anyways, that's all the time. What a downer. Yeah. <laughs> now that you're sad. That's how- <laughs> now that you're lonely. We'll let you go. Um, I. That's how I feel after every true crime episode. I'm like, I'm so fascinated by true crime, but at the end, I'm like, well, um, I know. See ya. It's always me who's Guys. like, let's do true crime. Let's do it. And then Ashley's like, I'm <laughs> depressed. Why'd you do this to me? I'm so sad. <laughs> Uh, but for real thank you guys for listening that's all the time we have this week for keep it weird um mike thank you so much for coming back on the show and joining us thank you guys for having me i would literally not want to be anywhere else we love it (laughs) we love you thank you for adding so much we needed the joy that you brought to this very setup you were the only shining light no you guys did a really great job with these stories today and i know that like I was hearing them all for the first time and I just like, I hope I'm like everyone that's listening and I can't wait to like look up all of this stuff because all of the stories today were so good. Well, thanks. We always love spending time with you. I know our listeners will be excited to hear from you this week as well. And we got another episode to plan now that we have our Ask Me Anything background. Yes. You'll have to come back on. I know that. That's going to be like the most dangerous yes, episode of yep. Yep. Keep It um, Weird. It's going to be special. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure what our episode is going to be next week uh, because that is we'll a while from now. But follow us on our social media at Keep It Weirdcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, we try to keep you all up to date there on what we have coming up. We're also going to be asking a lot for listener stories for a lot of our topics this year, aside from ghost stories. So, for example, we asked people to share tooth and dentist stories and stories about crazy coincidences so we can share them in our episodes. So if you want to be involved in any of that, follow us on our socials um, because we do record our episodes really far in advance due to the nature of life. So Instagram's where it's at, at Keep It Weirdcast. You can follow Mike on Instagram at M as in Mike. <laughs> dot dot j as in jersey shore at instagram.com um we'll tag him and stuff at instagram.com at instagram.com you can also join our patreon at patreon.com slash keep it weird podcast where you donate one five or ten dollars to our show and you can get a monthly newsletter two bonus episodes a month and discounts on merch and shout outs on our episodes so check that out if you're interested All the money goes towards producing the show and towards getting new merch and towards future paranormal investigations and travel. So every penny is used on this show. You can also check out our Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash keep it weird podcast if you want a t-shirt or hoodie to wear around town and show everybody how weird you are. 
Um, not it. What's our sign off this week? One of you. Oh. Yep, I got gotcha. you. Oh, good job with the not it. I know. I even oh. touched my nose. I'm alone in my bedroom. <laughs> I just wanted to say because I've said it once and I'll say it twice, but the sweatpants are so comfortable. You must purchase them. Just our them sign off today. every week. And a fun game we're gonna play. The first person to let keep it weird know that you purchase sweatpants. I'll buy your next pair <gasps> for a friend. Michael. So just make sure you message Damn. and with proof of proof of purchase and I got your next pair. That's the cutest thing I've ever heard in my life. That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. That's like a buy one, get Keeping one. Keeping the free. kids on their toes. But also <laughs> I love this because I know so many people, including myself, sometimes don't listen to the end of the episode because they're like, oh, I it's just their usual sign off. I'm not gonna listen. So this will really test to see who stayed with us. Who stuck I like around? it. Who You're stuck around to hear that button? That's right. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? All right, buy some sweatpants, um, and you get a free pair from Mike. <laughs> and also, if you join our Patreon, and you're a $10 Patreon, you get a signed autograph <laughs> of Mike and Carrie Underwood. <laughs> those, are, those are on unlimited supply. <laughs> yeah. So as many people who want them can have them. <laughs> and keep, keep it, it weird. weird. Mike check is ready. <laughs> Mike check. Michael check is ready. is ready. What's up? What's up? It's Mike on the mic, and I'm here to write you a check. You heard me right. That's going to be a Mike check. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm ruining this. 